Well, if you have your Bible, then please turn to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And if you do not know where it is, it is the fourth gospel found in the New Testament. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then afterwards, be John. John chapter 1, I'll begin by reading from verse 1. So brothers and sisters, this is God's holy and inerrant word. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Well, if you're new here, I normally go through a book of the Bible, and as, Christ, as, as Christmas is approaching, it would be appropriate for me to begin an expository sermons on the Gospel of John and have our minds focused on the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the Gospel of John is rich with so many truths. It's been said that the Gospel of John is so simple that a child can understand it. And yet it is so deep and profound that it'll take Christians a lifetime and theologians for a lifetime to study it. Or perhaps we can put it another way, that the Gospel of John is so deep that an elephant can swim in it, and yet shallow enough that children can play in it. And it's been said by theologians of the past and current that the Gospel of John is the most intensely theological of the four Gospels. And that John, as St. Augustine would have said, John was the eagle of the gospel. He sees most clearly the son of righteousness. And most of you may be familiar with the famous sayings from the Lord Jesus Christ, such as the seven I am statements, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the true vine. And most of you may have memorized and are able to recite this verse by heart and perhaps while you're sleeping. John chapter 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And the Gospel of John is also a book that I will almost always recommend non-believers and new believers who read first if they want to learn more about the Bible and also want to learn more about the scriptures, uh, Jesus, also about Jesus Christ. And so by way of introduction, it is important to dig into some background work. Uh, there should be without a doubt that the, the Apostle John was the author of this gospel. He was one of Jesus' chosen apostles. He was the son of Zebedee. He was the brother of James. He was most likely a young man during Jesus' earthly ministry. He also wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and also the book of Revelation. John was also known in church history as the apostle of love because because he was a lover of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was a lover of truth, and it's also because he wrote about love so many times in this gospel and also in his letters. And in this gospel, we never find the author 
mentioning his own name. Instead, John refers to himself as the, the, the disciple, particularly the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so John is the eyewitness of Jesus' earthly ministry, and he followed him for at least three years before Jesus ascended back into heaven. And he has the credibility to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you flip to the end of this gospel in John chapter 21, verse 24, here John says this, This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. Most scholars and early church fathers suggest that John most likely had written this gospel near the end of the first century, somewhere between 8085 to 8095. John was an old man by the time he wrote this gospel. And during this time, during that time, John would have been aware of the synopt- what we call the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, that, that were circulating among the churches and also John's readers. And this is one reason why John's account of the life of Jesus is in many ways different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are significant events in the ministry of Jesus that the Synoptic Gospels all include, yet John leaves out, including the birth of Jesus, the baptism of Jesus, the, the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, the confrontations with demons, Jesus te- teaching parables, the Lord's the Last Supper, the agony in Gethsemane, and the Ascension. And the early church fathers in the 4th century confirms that John was the last of the four Gospels to be written. And according to church tradition, he most likely had written this Gospel in a city of Ephesus. And now an important question we need to ask ourselves is this. Why did John write this Gospel? Why did John write this gospel? This is an important question when it comes to hermeneutics. Hermeneutics. Now, if you don't know the word hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics just simply means the art and science of biblical interpretation. This is important because as you read and study and interpret the Bible, your job is to understand the intent of the author in its historical and grammatical context. The principle of a faithful Bible interpretation is not what does the text mean to me, but to know what the author meant by what he said. What did John mean by by what he said? What did Jesus mean by what he said? And so our job is to figure out, find out what was the author's intent. And John's purpose statement, the reason for why he wrote the gospel, is actually not written in the beginning. It's actually found at the end. Now, I can imagine that the professors and English teachers may fail John for not giving his thesis statement in the beginning. And if you're a student in an English class, uh, you want to write your purpose statement in the beginning uh, because John's purpose statement is descriptive, not prescriptive. So please don't copy what John is doing. So why did John write this gospel? It's actually very crystal clear. In John chapter 20, in John chapter 20, 
verses 20 to verses 30 to 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And so that's John's purpose statement. That is why he wrote this gospel. And so whenever we read and study the gospel of John, we have to understand this book in light of John's purpose. And John's purpose is twofold. First, John wrote this gospel with a heart for apologetics. He wants to convince you. He wants to persuade you that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Second, John wrote this gospel with a heart for evangelism. He wants to persuade you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and have eternal life. Hence, that's why I always tell non-believers to read the Gospel of John first. And if you do not consider yourself a Christian this morning, and if you really want to know who Jesus is, then can I encourage you, friends, this morning to read through the Gospel of John this week and read through, or read through it this month. Study it. Understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is because he reveals himself very clearly here. And so having considered the background of John's gospel, we come to John chapter 1. And in the immediate, in the immediate context of John's opening, we find ourselves in the section of verses 1 to 18 that is commonly known as the prologue. The prologue. See, the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, usually begin with the narrative of the life of Jesus Christ. And Matthew and Luke would focus and would dial in particularly the birth of Jesus. But John does not immediately begin with a narrative. Now, why does John begin with a prologue? Why does he do that? He wants to begin by explaining the person of Jesus Christ as a way to set up the foundation for the rest of the gospel of John. And you can think of a prologue as the overview of John's gospel, because as you read through the gospel of John, you'll see parallel themes that connect all the way back to the prologue. And if we were to understand this passage, it would be helpful for me to ask you this question by way of illustration. What is your first question when you first meet people for the first time? What is your first question that you would ask when you meet people for the first time? You see, you typically ask, what is your name? And if you're like me, a few minutes into the conversation, you may ask this person, sorry, what is your name again? Uh, I tend to be forgetful of names, and perhaps those of you who are here this morning, you may have that kind of first impression of me when we first met this year. But you also do a follow-up questions, right? Uh, you may also ask, where are you from? Uh, what do you do for work? Or if, you don't, if, you're, if you're not working, uh, you ask, where do you go for, where do you, what, where do you go for school? Uh, which, what program are you currently studying in? You see, John here answers these two questions. John, or no, Jesus, who are you? And Jesus, where are you from? 
See, many Jews thought of Jesus as coming from Joseph and Mary. Isn't he the carpenter's son? Isn't he Jesus the Nazareth who came from Galilee? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Quite often during Christmas, we focus on the birth of Jesus. We focus on the baby who was born in a manger in the little town of Bethlehem. And while Jesus' birth is important in the Christmas story, it can't be disputed, can't negotiate that. It's important. While that is important, John here, what's very different about him is that he's actually not interested in where he's born, where Jesus is born. Why? It's because his readers would have known about it by reading Matthew and Luke. Instead, John is interested in telling us about who Jesus is and where he's from before he came into the world, before his incarnation, before his birth. He wants to teach us a transcendent truth of Christ. He wants to persuade you and convince you to believe this truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is, he is the eternal word. The eternal word, as you see here in the scriptures. Now, why does John here refer to Jesus as the word? Wouldn't it be easy to say, in the beginning was Jesus. And Jesus was with God. And Jesus was God. Well, there's the best explanation, I think, is regarding John's audience, who were generally Jews and Greeks. They would, been, have, they would have been familiar with this word, the word, which in Greek is called the logos, the logos, the word. The Greeks viewed the logos the word as the force that brings order to the world, preventing chaos and maintaining perfect order. They identified the logos as the quote-unquote ultimate reason, governing all things in an abstract sense. And the Jews viewed the logos as a reference to God, as the word of God. And so John then introduces his readers to Jesus Christ, the Word, the Logos, who is both the, the inward and the, ex, and the expressed thought of God. That this Word is not an abstract being, but a personal being who came down to the world. And since God spoke in power in the Old Testament, he ultimately speaks to us through the person of Christ. Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2, where the author of Hebrews clearly states this. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, and through whom also he created the world. And so God has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. And so we don't need to question. We don't need to question whether or not if God wants to speak to us. He wants to speak to us. And he has spoken to us through Jesus. And all you need to do, if you want to hear from God, is you turn your eyes and your ears upon the Lord Jesus by reading the Bible, hearing from Scripture. Furthermore, 
regarding the word, Jesus is referred to as the word four times here in this passage, four times in the prologue, verses one, verse one, and also verse 14. And after the prologue, John no longer uses that title. Why is that? Quite possibly, I would suggest, when reading the Gospel of John as a whole, that Jesus is the embodiment of the Logos and his entire ministry. He is the accurate expression of the Father. He is the supreme communicator of the Father. And that everything that Jesus did and said was in an alignment with the will of the Father. John, Jesus said this in John chapter 12, verses 49 to 50. For I have not spoken on my own, author- on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a command, what to say and what to speak. And I, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. And what I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. See, Jesus came here to do the will of the Father. And, if Jesus, and since Jesus heard from his Father who sent him, this means that the Father has spoken to him that Jesus Christ came onto this world to live out John chapter 1, verse 18, where the word came into the world to make the Father known. And so in these two short verses, and yet familiar verses, John wants us to consider three truths about the eternal word in verses 1 to 2. Three truths this morning. First, we learn about the eternal pre-existence of the word. The eternal pre-existence of the word. See, John begins, John begins with the gospel. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning was the word. See, when John talks about the word who was from the beginning, he is indicating the essence and the existence of the word in the sense of before all time, before all creation, before time, space, matters, and creation existed, there was the word. And since the word existed before time and space, he is eternal. The word not only existed before all time, he existed under eternity that the word was not a created being. There was not, never a point in history or eternity where the word came into being. This signifies his timeless existence. And not only that, John's first words in the beginning alludes back to the text in the Old, in the Old Testament, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, where, where the text says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You see, John was writing to an audience that knew the Old Testament. They they would have been familiar with that expression. I also think that John may be pointing us to a progression or to a movement here. See, in Genesis, we are introduced to the first creation, where God spoke creation into existence and breathed physical life into Adam. And John, he shows us a a different kind of creation, a, a more developed creation, if you will, one that transcends the physical and delves into the spiritual realm, John is introducing us to a new beginning, a new creation, 
which is found in the Lord Jesus Christ, whereby he is the true life. He is the eternal life. He is the abundant life. He is the everlasting life. He is the life that he wants to give to the sinners and regenerate them. And so we have covered the first truth, the eternal pre-existence of the word. And now for the rest of verse 1, two significant truths about the word is that he was with God and that he was God. Already, John is introducing us to the Trinity. To the Trinity. It's in, in the second part of verse 1, John says, the word was with God. He was with God. And so we learn about this second truth, and that is the eternal coexistence of the word. The eternal coexistence of the word. You see, the word coexisted with God the Father. Now, how can we know that this word God here is referring to the Father? It's because the word, Jesus, continuously talks about his relationship with the Father in this gospel, the gospel of John. And at the end of the prologue, here in verse 18, John mentions that the only God, which is the word, who was at the Father's side, who is also God, came to reveal and explain who God is. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And in John chapter 17, verse 5, Jesus prays this to his Father. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. He prays that he will return and be with his Father and share in the glory that he had with the Father for eternity before the world was created. And yet while the Word was with God, we also learn about the third truth, and that is the the eternal self-existence of the Word. The eternal self-existence of the Word. And that is here where John says, He was with God, and the word was God. See, God has always existed within himself because he is God. He is sufficient to himself. He is independent of anything outside of himself. God was not created. He has no source. He has no maker. He has no origin. He doesn't defend his existence. He declares his existence. And the word that John is talking about here is that God. He's that God. He's the self-existent God. Back in the Old Testament, when God spoke to Moses in the book of Exodus, you may know the story that God wanted to send Moses to, to, the, to Egypt and confront Pharaoh and telling Pharaoh to release, you know, to let my people go. And then Moses, having made too many excuses, he, he went, and one of the excuses, he said, well, what's the name? Like, what's your name? So I can tell Pharaoh who sent me. And then, then God spoke in the burning bush to Moses and declared who he is, where God said to him, I am has sent you. I am who I am, and I will be who will be. I am that God, Yahweh, who sent you. And there was an interaction between 
the Pharisees and John uh, and Jesus in John chapter 8 regarding Abraham. And when the Pharisees asked who Jesus was, Jesus then said, Before Abraham was even born, I am. Jesus used the personal I am name, thus declaring that he is that eternal God incarnate. He is that self, he is that God who has always existed. He is that God who has no source. He is the God who is not created. He has always existed within himself. Now John makes a rather bold claim that Jesus is God, the only God. See, during the Roman Empire, there was only one God. A small little God, of course. But there was only one God, and that was the Roman Empire, or the Roman Emperor. And that whoever claimed Jesus to be God was to be executed. But we live in a rather different society, right? Isn't it? We live in a rather different society. But Jesus being God is still rather controversial. Uh, atheism believes that there is no, absolutely no God. Agnosticism believes that, well, we cannot know for certain if there is a God or not. Hinduism believes that there are many gods, and Jesus was, is, was, is one of them. Islam believes that Allah is God, not Jesus. Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses deny that Jesus is God. And many people think Jesus was a prophet or a good teacher or a good moral teacher. Now, if you think that's what folks outside of the church believes, you'll be shocked to find a research or a survey that was done in 2022 in America regarding the state of theology. And this research was released by the Ligonier Ministries, which was a ministry by the late R.C. Sproul. This research was released by Ligonier Ministries and LifeWay Research regarding what American evangelicals believe. And they conducted a survey in evangelical churches, and thousands of folks completed the survey. And so the survey format involved presenting statements and prompting respondents to express their agreement or disagreement on a spectrum ranging from strongly agree to strongly disagree. And in summary, you can search it out on Google, uh, the State of Theology 2022, but in summary, the research indicate that more than half of these evangelical Christians, more than half, affirm heretical views of God. Three examples I'll share with you regarding what quote-unquote evangelicals believe about Jesus. First, Jesus isn't the only way to God. 56% of evangelical respondents affirm that God accepts the worship of all religions. And so this answer indicates a bent towards universalism, believing that there's a way to bypass Jesus in our approach to an acceptance by God. Second, Jesus was, a, was created by God. 73% agreed with a statement that, quote, Jesus is the first and greatest being created by God, end quote. This is a form of the ancient heresy known as Arianism that, ar that arose in the early 4th century. And third, Jesus is not God. 43% affirmed that, quote, Jesus was a great teacher, but he was not God, end quote, which is, again, another form of Arian heresy. 
You see, such research demonstrates two greatest concerns, at least for me as a pastor. First, many, more, more than half of those who call themselves evangelical Christians aren't truly born again and are heading towards eternal destruction without even knowing it. Second, perhaps, to give the folks the benefit of the doubt, perhaps there's a growing need for discipleship and Christian education in the church on sound doctrine and good theology. Because denying the deity of Jesus is a serious deviation from the historic Christian teaching of Jesus Christ. So we need to do more to educate believers and educate anybody about sound doctrine and good theology. And having spent three years of Jesus, the Apostle John testifies that, Jesus, that the Word was God. It's very clear. He, is, he was God. He is truly God and truly man. And then here in verse 2, John reiterates his point from verse 1 to make sure that his audience understood what he said about the Word and his relationship with the Word, that he was in the beginning with God. Now when John says, the word was with God and the word was God. Perhaps this may be a confusing statement to some of you. You, know, you. you may be asking, does that mean that there are two gods? You know, the Father is God. The word is also God. Does that not make two gods? Well, time does not permit me to explain, expound on the doctrine of the Trinity in, in great detail. Uh, but in brief, the, the Gospel of John and also the rest of the Bible makes it very clear that there's only one God whom we worship. The Lord is one. Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And so the historic Christian teaching affirms that God is one in divine essence and nature. But he exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And all three persons share in one essence and divine nature, which is God. And if I just, if I just lost you right there, come talk to me afterwards. But that's what we affirm. That's what we teach at the church. We teach the Trinity. We teach that Jesus Christ is truly God and truly man. And so that's who Jesus is, according to John chapter 1, verses 1 to 2. And we learn about the eternal pre-existence of the word. And we learn about the eternal co-existence of the word and the eternal self-existence of the word. Jesus is the eternal word. And as we reflect upon the eternal word, let me ask you a question. Why does the identity of Jesus matter to me? Why should I care about this matter? Well, in, when it comes to the word, when it comes to the topic or the theme of eternity, I want us to think about three applications. First application is the finiteness of man. The finiteness of man. See, when you compare yourself to the eternal God, should you not be in awe of who God is? See, men in their pride may think that they're smarter than God. Uh, they don't trust God for whatever reason, uh, because they trust in their own ways, they trust in their own wisdom, they trust in their own superiority, and they think they can navigate life more successfully on their own terms without following God. But friends, let me say this with love, that you are mere dust. You are dust. You have lived no more than 100 years. 
and yet you think you know in your finite and limited minds what's the best way to live when the eternal God, who have always existed before you were born, who is infinitely wise, eternally wise and good, offers you his way of living here in the scriptures, which is good for you. You're not smarter than God. You're not wiser than God. You cannot outlive God. In fact, after you pass away, you may be forgotten at the end of this life. And so embrace the humility that recognizes God's greatness and our need for his wisdom. Stephen Charnock, the 17th century Puritan, he once said this, and I quote, If man compares himself with other creatures, he may be too sensible of his greatness. But if he compares himself with God, he cannot but be sensible of his baseness. End quote. So the question you've got to reflect upon is this. How big is your God? Is your view of God high? Or is your own self higher than God? Second application. The eternal destination of man. Now it is true that we simply cannot conceive or even express God's eternity. It's hard to imagine what eternity is like if you think about it. Because we are beings who have not always existed, but were created by God who has always been and will always be. And yet, have you considered this, that you are actually an eternal being? That you are an eternal being. Now, you may be surprised you hear that, but that you are an eternal being. But you are. But not in the same way as God is. Not in the same way as God is. Because you had a beginning when you were conceived and formed in your mother's womb. But you have no ending. I do not know how long you and I will live on this earth. But we know that our lives here on earth is momentary. And after we die, we do not cease to exist. Rather, we will continue to exist. And the Bible paints the reality of your eternal destination. You will, you will either be with the Lord in heaven for all of eternity, or you will spend eternity in the eternal conscious torment in hell, suffering the fullness of God's wrath. And I think all of us have experienced a taste of eternity here on earth. I wonder how many of you have felt that time just stopped or that time just felt very slow. Maybe that happened when you're working. Or maybe, or maybe that happens at school as you're looking at the clock. It's like, when is this lecture or class going to end? As if, I hate this class. I want it to end soon. You may have felt that. Or maybe, maybe perhaps you have felt it when catastrophe struck your home. When you were going through pain and suffering. You see, all of us will go through pain and suffering one way or another to a varying degree, but can you imagine what hell will feel like? Not that I want to imagine, but, but if suffering here on earth makes time go by relatively slow, how much worse would eternal punishment be for the unrepentant sinners? See, therefore, John here, he introduces you to, to the eternal word who came into this created world as the Christ, the Son of God, 
to save sinners, to save them from eternal damnation by dying on the cross and being raised from the dead. For, and for what purpose? So that you may believe in him. And that by believing, you may have eternal life. John said this in John chapter 3, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. And then whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. And so, my friends, if you don't know Christ, see that I have set before you life and good, death and evil. And by the grace of God, I pray and hope, if you don't know Christ this morning, that you will choose life this morning by turning away from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus and follow him and not walk in sin and death. Finally, brothers and sisters, here's the encouragement and hope for you for your Christian living. And the third application is the eternal life from the Son of Man. See, when we consider eternal life that the eternal word offers, we often think that eternal life begins when we pass away, which is true, but not entirely uh, the big picture, because eternal life does not really begin when we die for Christians. It begins when God causes you to be born again Christians. Eternal life begins when we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus prayed this in John 17, verse 3, that this is eternal life, that they know you, Father, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, eternal life is all about knowing God and Jesus Christ here on earth. It's all about knowing him here on earth. It's about reading and growing your relationship with God by reading the Bible, praying to, praying to him, fellowshipping with other believers and being edified with the truth, and so much more. And so, brothers and sisters, may this be a fresh reminder for you that you do not need to wait until the end of your life to experience eternal life, but that you live right now in light of that future reality of being with God for eternity. You can refresh yourself this morning of the eternal light that, God has, that Christ has given you by growing in your personal relationship with the eternal word through his word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your, your word. We thank you that from all of eternity, however long that was, that was, that you've always existed. Lord, our, our minds cannot fathom and imagine what you were like before the world was created. Lord, our minds are so finite, yet help, help us to always, always also be in deep awe of who you are, that you have existed for eternity, that you are eternal, you're so inconceivable. And yet, you have made yourself known to us through your word. And you have made yourself known to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. That this eternal word came into the created world to save and rescue sinners. Lord, as we reflect upon eternity, 
Help us to take it seriously. And even for believers here on earth, our, our, our lives here are momentary afflictions. But we also know that eternity that is, that, that is before us, where I consider the sufferings of this world, is incomparable to the glory that is yet to be revealed. So thank you, Father. Thank you for your word. Thank you for these truths that we get to have in our lives. And as we walk with Christ, strengthen us in our relationship with him. Help us to apply these words into our lives this week and live in light of eternity. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Mm -hmm.